Take your Bible and find Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. This is the fourth and final sermon in this series, Four Pillars of Positive Change. This series came out of a brainstorming session that we held as a staff in January. And we determined what we believe are four fundamental culture shifts, four positive changes to build into the culture and the DNA of our church so that we can thrive together in the future despite the cultural headwinds that we face. Now, as we've said, the main pillar of positive change is weekly attendance and participation at the worship gathering on Sunday. And if you weren't here three weeks ago, I would kindly ask that you go to our website and listen to that sermon. Because when we regularly come together on Sundays and we frequently participate in ministries, God welds us together as one. It also tends to remove us from the ministry silos that we find ourselves in. You know, you serve in student ministry or Awana or uh, distributing donuts or whatever it might be. And without participating together on Sundays, we tend to just know that little crowd in that group where we participate. So when we all come together on Sundays, that's when God welds us together as one. And that's when we make Jesus unmissable in Leavenworth County. We're better together. That's the main pillar. Two weeks ago, we said we want to create a culture of invitation to make it normal for you to invite people to come with you on Wednesdays and Sundays. Jesus said... I will make you fishers of men. He didn't say you'll make yourself a fisher of men. He said, I'll do that in your life. So believe his word. And these two pillars are important because some people come to Jesus through the public preaching of God's word, some through personal witness. But the vast majority, whether a child or adult, come to Jesus through a combination of the two. And so you can participate in that a good way. To learn to become a fisher of man is via an invitation to church. It's a good starting point. And then last week, we uh, talked about the third pillar of positive change, and that is a culture of restoration, to gently yet vigorously restore people who've fallen away. We could put that another way. We want to close the back door. We're in a day when many are falling away. We want to bring people back to the fellowship of the saints. We want to make sure they didn't go out from us because they were not of us. Today is the final pillar, but by no means the least, this is the pillar of prayer. Praying individually, but also praying together corporately as a church. Now, God has ways of telling us that we need to pray. Right now, I think he's amplifying that need on full blast. The nuclear family, for example, is the foundation of any society. It's being decimated. Many have been turned over to a depraved mind to do the things that are not proper. And if there's any illustration of that, it's in one phrase I keep reading. I'll just repeat this phrase and then I'll drop the subject. Family-friendly drag queen show. Worst of all, lostness is greater than ever. And we have the privilege of laying hold of the throne of Almighty God and petition Him to change these things, to ask that His name be glorified and to minister to one another through prayer. So the fourth pillar is crucial, creating a culture of prayer, to be at our monthly church-wide prayer meetings and to not grow weary in going before the throne of grace with all of our needs. 
So let's read these two wonderful verses as we consider this subject, creating a culture of prayer. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Paul said, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Two wonderful verses. Creating a culture of prayer, number one, consider the potential of praying together. The New Testament uses the analogy of a body to describe a church. Now, that analogy is not used for the people of God until the birth of the church. 1 Corinthians, for example, is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, a local church. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he said that the moment we were saved, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So here's a shocking truth in a radically individualistic culture. When you were saved, you were saved into a church. You're no longer an independent unit. You are an interdependent person in the local body of Christ. Now, this same analogy shows up in Romans chapter 12. Paul says, we who are many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. So in that chapter, he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints Practice hospitality, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, be of the same mind as one another, rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation, and then he says, be devoted to prayer, praying together, the whole church. Now, none of this minimizes our personal prayer life, but it demonstrates the importance of a corporate prayer life, praying together. Now, if this is true, and it is, we should see some examples in Scripture. So in Acts chapter 1, the disciples gathered in an upper room. And verse 12 there says these, all of one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And in a radical departure from Jewish sociological norms, it says the men were praying along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Together, they prayed for wisdom over who Judas' replacement should be. And then you get to Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel. Verse 24 there says the church lifted their voices to God with one accord. And they prayed, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. They didn't pray, Lord, would you release them? They said, help us speak with boldness. Then they prayed, Lord, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, and God answered that prayer. Then you get to Acts chapter 6. Problems arose over the distribution of food to widows. They prayed together over the men who were selected to solve that problem. Then you get to Acts chapter 12. Major problems hit the church. Talk about a cultural headwind. Herod murdered James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder. And since everyone liked it, he imprisoned Peter, and Peter was going to be next. 
So verse 5 of that chapter says, Prayer for Peter was made fervently by the church to God. And by the way, if you read that chapter, the church was shocked when God answered that prayer. They were just as fallible and weak as we are. When the church sent Barnabas and Paul on mission, they prayed together over them. Paul and Silas were praying together when an earthquake freed them from jail. And we could keep going, but what might God do if we began to pray together? What person might be saved? That person that's been on your heart for decades. What person might be freed from the bondage of sin? What miracle might take place? Let me parenthetically say something. Any theology that limits Jesus to what happened in the book of Acts is a wrong theology. What miracle might happen? What great things might happen if we began to pray regularly together as a church? That's the potential, the great potential of praying together, but there's a help we need to pray. For many people, prayer is difficult. I heard a great statement the other day. I wrote it down. Prayer is an uncertain attempt to communicate with an unknown God. That's pretty good. As Christians, God gives us the gift of knowing God as our Father through faith in a risen Jesus. You have a Father that loves you. So you naturally want to communicate with him, but sin has put a gap between you and I and him, and that's why we can't hear his audible voice or see him in the flesh. We would instantly disintegrate. But until faith becomes sight, a Christian has a desire to pray, and then two things hit you. Number one, who am I to ask anything of God? And number two, I'm not always sure what I should even pray for. Number one hits you when you realize how holy God is and how sinful we are. Number two hits us when we realize prayer is more than just asking for the things that we want. So how do we solve these problems? The answer is found in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. He's always at the right hand of God, interceding for you. And the more you realize this, and the more you believe it, the more you'll have the confidence and the boldness to pray. Hebrews 7.26 says he is a high priest. Listen, that means Jesus presents you to God not as you are, for that would be completely unacceptable. He presents you to God as you are in Jesus, which is completely perfect, without sin. So the more we recognize and understand what Jesus does, presenting you to God without spot or blemish, and interceding for you before God, the more you have confidence and boldness to pray. But we need more than that. So look at verse 26. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. It says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Now, in the same way there, that refers to verse 16. In verse 16, it says, the Holy Spirit testifies to you that you're a child of God. So when verse 26 says, in the same way, Paul is just referring to the Holy Spirit's active ministry in the life of a believer. And he says, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should. That word help 
implies a partnership. It's an unequal one, but it is a partnership. Here's what that means. The Holy Spirit does not pray instead of us. He does not pray without us. He prays along with us. And he makes possible what is not possible in our weakness. We need help because of our weakness. So the question here is, what is meant by the word weakness? Well, one thing is physical frailty. There are times when you are so tired or so stressed that it's hard to concentrate. Or maybe you're in physical pain, or you're just physically frail, or you're injured, or you have a disease. Therefore, it's just hard to keep your mind focused. Maybe for you, it's a battle with the dark tunnel of depression or the mysterious pain of anxiety. If you're struggling with depression, you don't even have the desire to get out of bed in the morning. Thinking about praying seems like having to climb Mount Everest. And for those of you who wouldn't know, because you're new to West Haven, I struggled with depression and anxiety for a time after my kidney transplant. It's this bizarre, unexplainable, terrible state of mind that you can't shake. I had a couple of days where it was like my brain was divided in half. This side was just spinning out of control. This side was saying, what's wrong with you? Thank God that the Holy Spirit helps us in prayer during those times of physical frailty. Other weakness can come from an acute sense of failure. You feel defeated by life. Maybe you've made decisions in the past that were unbiblical and you're sowing what you reap and the law of sowing and reaping can be a very difficult one. Your regret is great. Or you made the best decision you knew at the time and everything has gone south and you wrongly feel like a failure because of one decision and the way life has turned out to be so difficult. Your weakness also may come from feeling defeated by your sin. You're not someone who denies your sin. You know your sin. And you know Jesus' holiness. So like Peter, when he saw Jesus' glory, your thought is, Lord, depart from me for I am a sinful man. And therefore, you feel inhibited from praying or ashamed to pray. Your sin always seems to be staring you in the face. You know that the Bible says draw near to God and he'll draw near to you, but you feel so unworthy. Drawing near to God seems impossible. Realize, realize that because of this verse, you don't bear that burden alone. Your weakness can also come from a struggle with your faith. In a particularly vexing verse in the book of Matthew, and ironically, I had this written before my quiet time on Thursday, and this was a verse. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. How do you feel about your faith when you hear that verse? Nobody's saying amen. Does your faith move mountains? Now, granted, that verse needs to be contextualized and interpreted. It's just an illustration. It means if you have even a little bit of faith that is directed toward Jesus and guided by God's word, then you can move mountains. But listen, I will fully confess that I have often felt defeated when I've read that verse. 
said, Lord, I don't seem to have mountain-moving faith. What's wrong with me? Thank God we don't bear that burden alone. And sometimes our weakness comes from just being worn out in prayer. You have prayed the same heartfelt request over and over and over again. 10, 20, 30, maybe 40 years for you. Maybe it's someone you want to be saved. Maybe it's something you want to be free from. And those requests seem to surely be in God's will, but there seems to be no movement toward an answer. In fact, maybe things seem to have gone the other way, and you feel defeated and perplexed. So we need help because of our weakness. And we need help because we don't know what to pray for. Look at verse 26 again. It says, we do not know how to pray as we should. Sometimes we'd have to admit that we have very little confidence that our prayer will be answered in the affirmative. We find ourselves thinking, well, what should I pray for? How should I pray? Can I pray with confidence claiming things by faith? Or do I always have to make my prayer tentative saying, Lord, if it's in your will... And what happens if I pray wrongly? Am I praying to get God to change his mind? If God preordains things, does it even matter if I pray? And we begin to second-guess everything. Here's an example. God, I need a different job. So would you open that door? Well, if it's your will, and if it'll be good for my family, if it'll glorify your name, well, should I even pray for that job? And you just second-guess yourself to death. Or... You have a son or a daughter or a friend or a relative who is lost, so you pray, and you've prayed this, Lord, do whatever is necessary to bring them to the Lord. Well, now, wait a minute. Whatever is necessary might be catastrophic. It might affect other people. So is that according to God's will? Some of the psalms are called imprecatory psalms. I-M-P-R-E-C-A-T-O-R-Y. Imprecatory psalms psalms that means the writer of psalms wants god to treat his enemies brutally for example in one psalm david prayed that god would kill david's enemies psalm 79 says pour out your wrath lord on the nations that do not acknowledge you psalm 59 says consume my enemies in your wrath god but uh, wait a minute, Jesus said I'm supposed to pray for my enemies. So how do I actively, excuse me, how do I pray for a person who is actively and blatantly committing evil that hurts many people? What about a man who's beating his wife? How do you pray for that man? How do you pray for the people who are bringing fentanyl into this country and many, many people are dying? What about the wicked politicians in prayer? How do you pray for them? Oh, we'll pray for them because they're created by God in his image. Dietrich Bonhoeffer conspired to kill Hitler. Should you pray for Hitler's death? You say, oh, no, we pray that Hitler would be saved. Fair enough. Who's going to confront him with his sin? Now, I'm not trying to be silly here. What I'm trying to illustrate is there are practical situations that tie us up in knots. For example... You've got a person who's a Christian. Do you pray for God's healing when they're ill, or do you pray they go on to heaven? Sometimes that isn't all that hard, but then does it matter how old they are? What's his will? Now, all of us experience this. And if you're new to the faith, do not believe that it's easier to pray as you grow in the faith. Look again at verse 26. Paul says the Spirit helps 
our weakness. We do not know to pray as we should. He's including himself. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times that God would remove it, and then he learned that prayer wasn't in God's will. So we see in Scripture that many times people asked for the wrong things. A mother always wants what's best for her children, right? I guess not, but... I know this sermon is a great demotivator. It's going to get better. But there was a mother in Scripture who went straight to Jesus with a request. She got on her knees before him, and he said, What do you want? Hey, now that sounds good. We're about to get somewhere. That prayer is going to be answered, right? And the mother of the sons of Zebedee said, Lord, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right and on your left. And Jesus kindly said to her, you do not know what you are asking. Now, you may feel some inner tension right now. In fact, I kind of hope that you are. Because we know where to pray, but we're too weak to pray, and we don't know what to pray for. So again, this may sound like a great demotivator, but remember that the Spirit helps us. And look at verse 26. This is a key. It's the intercession of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. Intercede means to stand in the gap. So look at the end of verse 27. He intercedes for us according to the will of God. We don't always know what to pray for, but he does. So this is so freeing. Ask freely of God. Ask biblically and boldly. Remember that he is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we think or ask and know that he intercedes for us according to God's will. By the way, this is why we pray in the name of Jesus. It means we ultimately submit all our prayers to him humbly and, and submissively recognizing that the Holy Spirit will intercede for us and we don't have to worry about it. This is so freeing. Pray according to your best understanding. Pray with whatever light you have at the time from the Bible. And the Spirit intercedes for you according to God's will. Now, he doesn't do this apart from our praying. He does this as we pray. And then look again at verse 26. He says he does this with groanings too deep for words. I was surprised to find as I dug into this, there's major disagreement on who does the groaning, the Holy Spirit or us. Now, some say it's us because they say the Holy Spirit can't groan. That would mean some kind of imperfection in the Trinity. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I greatly respect, said the Godhead does not groan. It is inconceivable for every reason. But sometimes I think theologians make the Bible too hard to read. If the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. But always look at the context. So look up at verse 22. It says creation groans. Well, creation can't groan. It's inanimate. So that's a figure of speech. The second instance of groan is verse 23. We groan within ourselves. We all have the problems that befall men and women. So we groan as we grow through this life, eagerly awaiting the day we're home with Jesus. So there's a progression here. It goes from the inanimate in verse 22 
to the animate in verse 23, and then to the infinite in verse 26, the Holy Spirit groans. Well, like in verse 22, it's a figure of speech. The Holy Spirit is able to articulate his prayer. The idea here is that the groan is made by one who helps bearing a burden. Now, let me illustrate this. I moved across town about two and a half years ago. By the way, the test of your Christianity is how you respond when someone asks you to help them move. <laughs> I have a treadmill that weighs as much as a train engine. And you, th you think I'm kidding, and I'm not. It's not an everyday treadmill. The guys who got it out of my basement over there and moved it over here, they were groaning. They were bearing a burden doing for me what I could not do. So verse 26 says that the Spirit bears that burden for you. And being the third person of the Trinity, those groanings can't be expressed in words. So you always have this helper every time you pray. Three applications, maybe four. First of all, pray with us at our monthly prayer meetings. We see what God did in the book of Acts when churches prayed. The potential is unlimited. But number two, whether it's praying together as a church or individually, don't expect it to be easy. Satan hates it. Your flesh is weak and so is mine. Only the spirit is willing. So this is a call to a battle. And our perseverance in that battle is a victory. And then number three, be encouraged to pray. The Holy Spirit has been graciously given to us as a helper to pray with us. He frees us from fear. He frees us from weakness. How can we not be encouraged by that grace? So let's build these four pillars into our church. Regular attendance and participation. A culture of invitation. A culture of restoration. And then this culture of prayer. Praying together, praying individually. And if you have never been saved, I, I, we want to pray for you right now. No one is ever born as a believer. On occasion, I'll hear someone say, I've been a Christian ever since I can remember. That's not true. That can't be true. You're born a sinner at some point in your life. And you may not be able to identify it if you're a Christian, and that's okay. But at some point in your life, you turn away from your sins and you turn to Jesus by faith. Only those who are saved by grace through faith will inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible is very clear about this. You're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God, not of works, not of anything you do, so that no one can boast. So if you're there right now and you sense that the Lord is just, you can't even put your finger on it, but the Lord is drawing you out of your sins and to him, then just pray right now. Ask him to save you as long as it's sincere, but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of a formulaic prayer. It's a matter of in your mind, in your heart, you believe. And so here's what we have set up as pastors to help you with this. You say, I'm not sure. I want to talk about it. There's a number of ways. First of all, that card in the seat back in front of you. Just check there that you want to talk about salvation and either give it to myself or Nathan or Kirk, or you can put it in a basket at the back of the worship center. We'll get back to you for sure. Um, you, can, you, you can send us an email. You can send us a text. We would love 
to be able to have a conversation with you and talk about this. And for those of you, again, who are new to West Haven, I didn't get saved until I was 23 years old, and I know how this whole thing goes. You're, you're fearful, you're convicted, you're afraid to talk to someone. Don't, don't be afraid. We're here to help you. We love you. If you've never been baptized by immersion after salvation, would you talk to us about that? Because that's the first step of obedience in the Christian life. Sometimes we have kids and we, we, we say, well, they're saved and we're going to wait for them to understand baptism. Backwards. You wait until you know they're saved and then you get them baptized. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to have a thorough knowledge of baptism before you're baptized. I didn't have a clue what I was doing when I was baptized, except that I was obeying the Lord. And then if you want to become a member of this church, you can check that on that card or talk to us. We would love for you to investigate membership. Here's what I want to do right now. And Nathan, we didn't talk about this. This is something on the fly here. I want us just to pray for a couple of minutes. Just, just individually, just silently pray. I hope that you're so encouraged to pray that whatever it is the Lord has put in the front of your mind, that's just maybe a minute, minute and a half, I'm just going to give you time to pray silently and then I'll close us in prayer. Right now, let's go to the Lord in prayer as you pray silently. Lord Jesus, my prayer is create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Just like David prayed. I know that's desperately needed in my life. I know it's needed in many others. And I thank you that you help us in our weakness. Give us the boldness to pray. Give us the encouragement to pray. Always help us remember that the spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. And I pray that the spirit would win that battle over the flesh in our lives. And I pray that these four pillars would be built into our church. I, I, I pray that each one of us would actively seek to inculcate them in our life. That we'd be here on Sundays that we would invite people to come with us, that we'd reach out to people that we see who haven't been here, and that we would learn how to pray. Thank you for the amazing privilege of going before you, the God of the universe, one of seven billion people, yet you give us the privilege of praying to an infinite God. Thank you for that. 
Thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for these dear people. And I pray it in Christ's name.